There's one advantage of being up the front. You can take your mask off. Thank you for the welcome. It's uh, good to be with you again uh, after a reasonable time. Uh, I, I never know whether I'm supposed to introduce myself or don't particularly like talking about myself, but just in case it's useful, um, I'm a retired Baptist pastor, um, retired to Bustleton from Albany, um, and have a wife and three adult children and no grandchildren. So I have to be a grandparent to other kids. Um, I trust the message will be God-honouring and useful to you today. Let's pray. Open our hearts, Lord, so that we may come to see great and wonderful things from your word and rightly and truly fear you. Amen. It was the Sea of Galilee uh, at night, a violent storm, and the fishing boat. Most of the men in the boat are fishermen. It must have been some storm because they are afraid. Jesus is there, but he's asleep. They're certainly not. And they shake him awake and yell at him, don't you care that we're going to die? And Jesus' response is riveting. He says to the storm, stop. Let that wash over you a bit, um, what it must have been like. He stands up and speaks and the storm dies away. He rebukes the wind and it stops. The men's reaction is interesting. Most normal people um, would be so relieved they'd fall over themselves saying thank you. But not these men. They were filled with great fear. Why? Um, in the middle of a restless, pressing crowd is a woman. And her misery is palpable. She is perpetually, ceremonially unclean. Therefore, she's an outcast to all of the people um, and probably had to live on her own. But she leaves, believes enough about Jesus to, to know that he has power and thinks to herself, if only I touch him. She does, and instantly she's restored. No surgery, no prayer, completely healed. And then it gets weird again. Jesus says, who touched me? The disciples certainly thought he was weird because they said, come on, Lord, there's a crowd. They're all pushing on you. But Jesus knew and he reassures her when she identifies herself, your trust has brought healing. And you can imagine her joy. The world smiles again. She lives again because of Jesus. But she came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear. That's weird. Why? And then the um, account from Revelation, which was read so well a moment ago, 
post-resurrection, post-ascension. John is on exile, in exile on Patmos. He's in the spirit on Sunday and he sees the Lord Jesus exalted and reigning. This is John, the one particular one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. He spent three years with Jesus. He counted him at close quarters, experienced his love and kindness, observed all his mighty works, watched him die in agony, saw him alive again against all the odds. Now he sees him in his ascended splendor and power and majesty. And his response, he's utterly overwhelmed as, you, as, we, as we heard. I fell at his feet though dead. Why? Jesus saves his disciples' lives and they fear him. Jesus gives an outcast woman her life back and she fears him. John sees his friend and saviour and is overwhelmed and fears him. It seems to me that it's counterintuitive on the surface. When miracles occur, most people uh, get so excited and they also want a piece of the healer. They get excited. Why fear here? When, when we meet people, we have categories that we um, place them in. If someone is smiling, it's a bit difficult these days with masks, isn't it? You, um, you have to sort of try and work it out. But in normal circumstances, if someone's smiling, they go into the category happy. If someone, if we see someone uh, sort of frowning, or yelling, we think angry box. If someone is jumping up and down and yelling, we have to do a bit of a take. Uh, is that angry or is that glad? Um, is their footy team losing or winning or whatever? We have to decide what category they fit in, mad or glad. But in all of that, they fit our categories. However, if we meet someone, someone outside our categories, we become uncomfortable. And Jesus doesn't fit any category that the disciples possessed. He was outside the experience of the fishermen. They had nothing, no category, no, uh, nothing to explain someone who can stand up and say to a storm, stop and it stops. Jesus' knowledge and power is beyond the experience of this woman. She knew something, but the fact that he could just be touched and she's healed, outside her categories. They can't grasp him in their minds. They doesn't fit with what they know about people, about rabbis of the time. He's outside their frame of reference, so they're afraid. There is something about Jesus that evokes a holy fear. He doesn't fit the normal boxes. He can't be fully explained in human terms. 
I mean, how do you explain someone who speaks to a storm and it stops? How do you explain someone who's so majestic and awesome that he makes you faint? You can't. They're experiencing the fear of God. R.C. Sproul put it this way. He said, some years ago, a French writer, and I won't get his name right, so I won't mention it, coined the word numinous. And he means by it something that is real, that is there, but we can't grasp it. It's a little bit like mercury that you can't pick up. It's a little bit like a, um, a concept that we can't quite get our minds around. But it's real and it has an impact. But we can't control it. We can't master it. It stands over against us. And there's a bit of a fear because we're not in control and because it doesn't fit our categories and we can't handle it easily. This is Jesus. Jesus the Holy One. You see, he's not someone who is mastered by us that masters us. He's not subject to world forces but subdues them. He's not top of the class. He's in a class on his own. He's unique. He's not one among many but distinct. He's not classified with others but he stands alone the God man we can't fathom him or decide what to make of him he's part from us yet one with us he's the son of God the man from heaven the holy one and so he's feared the son of God in human flesh is simply so great so glorious so compellingly attractive but he's unlike anything we know. His very presence elicits this healthy, enriching, life-expanding, hope-instilling, peace-bringing fear of God. But that's not all of it. Let me read some from Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That's a bit counterintuitive too, isn't it? I would have thought majestic glory, awesome holiness, a stunning power would evoke fear. But grace, forgiveness, yes, yes. You see, forgiveness by God, casting away the guilt and adopting rebels into the family through the death of Jesus is totally out there. That is not normal. Reconciliation between the Holy One and corrupt rebels is out there. 
undeserved, unmerited, unearned, unbelievable. God is holy, we are not. God is right in all he does and says. We are often, more often than not, wrong. God is just, we are guilty. He condones nothing. So for God to forgive is staggering. For God to adopt rebels is beyond our categories. Adoption in Roman times, in the time of Christ, was not babies or children. It was adults. And they were checked out to the nth degree before they were adopted, so they would never bring um, disrepute on the name of the family. God adopts rebels. It's so stunning, so utterly extraordinary, that he's feared. There is forgiveness that you may be feared. Like the rush of the Avon River after, the good, after good rains, the proper fear of God flows from God's pardon through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because no one is worthy of it. And we see it in our cancel culture today that someone can be um, have made some stupid statement or erroneous statement or even terrible statement back when they're young and it's brought up again and immediately they're cancelled. The, the idea of forgiveness doesn't exist a lot in our community. And that's sinners to sinners. What is it? The Holy One who grants forgiveness. None of them had any sense of entitlement. None of them thought they deserved his favour and his help. Yet he heals, saves and forgives. It's pure, unmerited, undeserved favour. He is so gracious that he's to be feared. In The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, um, C.S. Lewis uh, how many of you younger people have read C.S. Lewis stuff? Tales of Narnia. Oh, you're missing something. Um, anyway, he has a conversation where one of the children asks Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about Aslan the lion. Conversation goes like this. Is he uh, quite safe? I feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. This is Lucy speaking. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain stupid. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He is so great and so good, he's feared. At this point, you might be silently arguing, why does he persist in using the word fear? It is so misunderstood 
when used of the Lord Jesus. That's a good point, and I wrestled with this. And then a throwaway comment settled it for me. The comment, this is awesome. And it was said like that. What were they speaking about? An ice cream. <laughs> and I thought, awesome has been so devalued when speaking of God, I'll stick with fear. You can tackle me afterwards. When anyone truly encounters the Holy One, they will experience fear. When anyone truly receives and understands the grace of God, the Holy One, they will experience the true fear of God. People rightly tremble at such inexplicable holiness and mercy. Another bit from The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe. In um, chapter 12, it's almost three quarters of the way through the, through the book, the children arrive at the place of the stone table. They hear the sound of the music and turning in that direction, they saw what they had come to see. Aslan stood in the centre of a crowd of creatures who had grouped themselves around him whoops, in the shape of a half moon. But as for Aslan himself, the beavers and the children didn't know what to do or say when they saw him. People who have not seen, been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had never thought so, they were cured of it now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great, royal, solemn, overwhelming eyes. And then they found they couldn't look away and they went all trembly. His voice was deep and rich and somehow took the fidgets out of them. They now felt glad and quiet and it didn't seem awkward them, to them to stand and say nothing good and terrible at the same time. No wonder they all went trembly. Do you regard Jesus like that? Would you say you regard him with biblical fear? That he's good and terrible at the same time and go trembly. Conclusion then is that the fear of God is essential for life and godliness. I think it makes it, scripture makes it clear that the fear of the Lord is a crucial and vital element in Christian experience. Essential for life and godliness. I'm just going to um, read a number of verses, not um, develop them at all but just try and make the point. The fear of God is basic to friendship with God. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. God gives goodness at an appropriate time to those who fear him. Oh, how abundant is your goodness which you've stored up for those who fear you. 
The watching eye of God is on those who fear him. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. The Lord's fatherly uh, sympathy is directed toward those who fear him. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. The Lord is pleased with those who fear him, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. The fear of the Lord is the very source and foundation of wisdom. That's what the word beginning uh, emphasises. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. It's the source of true knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning or the source or the foundation of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Fearing God is like drinking at the fountain of life. Fear of the Lord is the fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. God's salvation is to those is near to those who fear him. Surely his salvation is to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. He supplies food to those who fear him, he provides food for those who fear him. Fearing God has a profound influence on uh, conduct. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. The absence of fear it leads to open rebellion against God. There is no fear of God before their eyes, so they reject him. Fearing God is essential to evangelism. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. One writer said, the fear of the Lord or the fear of God is the soul or the very heart or very the essence of godliness. It's the animating and invigorating principle of a godly life. It's the wellspring of all godly desires and aspirations. So to be godly, to aspire to be uh, godly to progress in godliness we must understand and grow in the fear of the Lord Hebrews twelve fourteen says strive and it's the word for persecute or pursue with that sort of zeal persecuting zeal the holiness without which no one will see the Lord we won't see God unless we pursue holiness with genuine vigor and you won't pursue godliness with that genuine vigour if you do not fear him. It's indispensable to life. It means we won't take the Almighty lightly. We will treat his word with utmost respect and glad obedience. We won't regard his church with indifference or carelessness. And I could go on. So the question again, do you fear God? Does that undergird your life? So my closing exhortation then is cultivate the fear of God. Grow in the fear of God. It is compatible with happiness the person who fears God is truly happy. 
It is compatible with love. The person who um, fears God treasures him above all their treasures. It rests comfortably with grace. When you experience God's grace in the death of his son, you cannot help but fear him. When you experience the power of the spirit uh, working in producing godliness, you cannot help but fear him in the biblical sense. Uh, uh, There was no collusion at all, but when Damien drew out Psalm 86.11, that's what I had down. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I'm so divided in heart. I'm so fickle. My devotion is so faint. Uh, I'm pulled in different ways. Give me an undivided heart that I fear you as you deserve and as you are worth. So learn the fear of the Lord. How do we do it? Meditate well and often on the nature and being of God, the Holy One. This will, unless I'm very wrong, and that's always possible, um, will lead to a real sense of unworthiness and even shame and guilt. Don't fall into thinking that I must get rid of those feelings of guilt. Rather, meditate on the grace of God in Jesus to take away guilt itself. Tell yourself the message of Jesus dying and rising for sinners often. Grace extended to an undeserving person. Grace that flows from holiness and goodness and righteousness. God's awesome holiness and glorious grace meet in Jesus Christ. There you find life, forgiveness and reconciliation to the great creator. There we learn and experience the proper fear of God. Let me pray. O holy God, the sinless seraphs cover their faces in your presence. How much more should we who are sinful creatures bow reverently before you? You alone are holy. You alone are the transcendent, majestic God. You alone are morally pure and good and righteous. You are perfect light. In you there is no sin-caused darkness at all. And yet, through your Son, you came to us as our Saviour. You came not to announce despair, but blessing to those who trust in him. You came in Jesus not to condemn, but to forgive. Not to destroy, but to restore. O Lord, unite our hearts to fear your name. Through Jesus Christ, we praise you, worship you, adore you love you and fear you. Amen.